the beginning of each year, I like to start it off with the basics about Buddhism. Last week, I talked about you know, why did the Buddha meditate? What's the purpose of meditation practice? And uh, this week, I'm going to talk about the concept of the Four Noble Truths. And then going forward, we're going to talk in detail about the uh, elements of the Four Noble Truths. And believe it or not, there's so much richness there that this can take up a good bit of the rest of the year. There'll be other topics that will be brought up that are, uh, I would say, adjunctive to uh, the main topic. Uh, the Four Noble Truth is called Kataria. Arya Sachani, and uh, that is translated as the truths of the noble ones or the realities of the spiritually worthy ones. It's considered to be a fundamental way to understand Buddhism in any of the different traditions, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, all the different uh, schools, if you will core of it is the Four Noble Truths. The truth, what's the word truth? Well, you could describe it as the way reality operates. It's not so much about honesty, although that's part of it, but it's, it's a way to understand subjective reality each one of us experiences. The word noble um, Stephen Batchelor is a well-respected scholar and teacher of Buddhism, and he prefers to use the word ennobling, and I can relate to that. Um, back in the time of the Buddha, what constituted nobility was being born into uh, the aristocracy, the clans, um, the Brahmin priests and the uh, Kshatriya clan, which was the leadership or warrior clan, and everyone else was uh, subordinate to that. And it was assumed that living a spiritual life meant that you followed the rules, the spiritual rules, the, the um, social, cultural rules of that particular clan. And if you did that, that was uh, your way to move up the path of spiritual evolution, if you will. Um, one of the things that was remarkable about this person we call the Buddha was that he um, kind of repurposed a lot of the terms that were current at the time. And so he said that what makes someone noble is not the clan that they're born in or their gender. What made a person noble was the, their ethical standards and how well they lived up to them. And that's what caused a person to progress in the path of spiritual development. So that's what uh, noble means. Now, generally, traditionally, it's been assumed that the Four Noble Truths originated from a talk the first talk that the Buddha gave, which is called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, which is translated as setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma discourse. The wheel is an interesting uh, consideration. Uh, early in Buddhism, before, you know, we have all these statues of a seated Buddha meditating. Those really were not prevalent during that time. What was prevalent was either a, a, a footprint, the, the path, or what was called a Dharma wheel, which had eight spokes. And um, the eight spokes represent part of the Four Noble Truths. And what's interesting about a wheel is that uh, at the center of it is the hub, uh, which is the Four Noble Truths, and then um, as the wheel rotates, we go through life, we go down the path, 
Each one of the eight spokes of the wheel is the primary support of weight between the, uh, the hub of the wheel and the ground. So uh, that's interesting to consider as, a, as a, an image, an icon. The wheel is always turning, and so the eightfold path, uh, the elements of that are always in use. But contemporary scholars really are not sure that the Buddha sat down with the, the five fellow travelers that had a, uh, been part of his uh, training regimen for a while. He gave this talk and it just kind of flowed out of his mouth. That's the tradition. But scholars are saying it's probably not the case. Because when he first started talking, he had just experienced his awakening. It's not likely that the concept of the Four Noble Truths was really that coherent in his mind or um, wasn't really that um, comprehensible to the people who were uh, practicing what he was teaching. So we're not sure, even if this person we call the Buddha ever gave this talk, might be that it only came together after his life. I prefer to think that he did say this, or something very much like this. And I'm going to read some quotes from it now. Um, this is a translation by a contemporary monk, an American monk named uh, Tanisaro. Uh, I have heard on, that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Varanasi in the deer park at Isipatana. There he addressed the group of five monks. There are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. Which two? That which is devoted to sensual pleasure in connection with sensuality. Base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable. And that which is devoted to self-affliction. Painful, ignoble, unprofitable. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. And what is the middle way realized by the Tathagata that, that producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding? Precisely this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the middle way realized by the Tathagata that producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, Distress and despair are stressful. Associating with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress. That craving, the craving that makes for further becoming accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Precisely this noble eightfold path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now I'm going to quote some more from this uh, discourse. 
first I want to um, explain some of the terms that are in that translation. The word Tathagata is how the awakened Siddhartha described his Buddha-ness. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the talk last week is that he was not called the Buddha in his lifetime. That came later, after he died. And after his awakening, he ostensibly did not use personal pronouns about himself. Instead of saying I, he would say the Tathagata. That word can be translated as mastery of suchness. Um, the traditional translation is thus gone. So this suchness, the mastery of suchness, uh, refers to direct experiential awareness of the absence of an enduring and autonomous self, total liberation from distress and confusion. Middle way, very important concept in Buddhism. It's not only a middle ground between sensual self-indulgence and sensual self-punishment, it also represents turning away from believing that there's an enduring autonomous self. It's associated with either lifestyle. So this notion of um, turning away from believing there's an enduring autonomous self, the notion of non-self does not mean that the person has no organized personality. Obviously this person we call the Buddha had this tremendously transformative experience and then spent the next 45 years building a community that's lasted more than 25 centuries since then. So he was not dysfunctional in the least. He's very effective. Um, so what does that mean, a middle way? Well, what it means is that there's an awareness of personality, five aggregates, which are form, feeling, perception, the conditions of the mind, and consciousness. And um, those five aggregates, when they're afflicted by craving and clinging, produce dukkha, distress and confusion, which Tanisro translates as stressful. It's his uh, translation of the word dukkha. Um, so, um, this person has a transformative experience, becomes fully enlightened. The five aggregates are still functioning. Form basically means what happens with sensations. Sound and hearing, eyes and seeing, nose and smelling, tongue and tasting, and what we call the somatosensory experience, what it feels like to be in a body. Um, that's form. So it's a fundamental stimulation being alive. Feeling is basically the immediate instinctual reactive uh, impulse that we all experience. Every organism experiences it. Even, you know, single-celled organisms will orient away from something that's toxic and, toxic and towards something that's nutritive. So that's a very fundamental aspect of any living creature. Uh, it's that feeling. But there's no, there's no dukkha, there's no distress and confusion in feeling. It's just what it is. It's just this affective, instinctual response to a stimulus. Then there's perception. Perception is how the mind singles out one particular part of the data input stimulation from all the rest and starts to build a response to it. And that response is organized around mind conditioning factors. Um, history, you know, you know, karma in Buddhism. But basically what it means is the, the memories in your brain, prior experience. And all of this is reflected in consciousness. So after his awakening, the Buddha had this profoundly transformative experience. The five aggregates still function without craving and clinging. Right? So that's part of the middle way. 
before he awakened, Siddhartha Gautama grew up in a very self-indulgent environment. All the sensual gratification and social privilege available at that time in that part of the world. He realized the hollowness of that way of living, left it all behind, and became a shramana, a religious renunciate. During his time as a renunciate, his mind, he was trained to become very, very concentrated and then very, uh, practice very aesthetic uh, practices, practically starving himself to death. So, after he had this transformative experience, awakening, he found a middle way of living. You know, eating to keep the body healthy, getting enough rest to keep the body healthy, behaving in ways that were wholesome, kindness, compassion, generosity, uh, equanimity, so forth and so on. That's the middle way. So I mentioned earlier that stressful is Tanisaro's translation of dukkha. And um, I prefer to use, in the traditional rendering of suffering, I prefer to use distress and confusion. Distress relates to the craving part. Confusion relates to the clinging part. And I already described the five, five uh, clinging aggregates. So, later in the Sutta, there's a transitional process described that moves from conceptual knowledge through direct realization to liberation, relief from craving and clinging. This first is the conceptual understanding regarding each of the truths, followed by an investigative awareness of the experience of these different uh, qualities or, or functions of experience. Without craving and clinging or with less and less craving and clinging. And this leads to uh, the realization, uh, the fulfillment of the uh, Four Noble Truths. Uh, liberation from subjective experience liberated from distress and confusion. That would be ultimately the experience of nirvana, the unconditioned. So here's uh, another quote from the same discourse, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of stress. This noble truth of stress is, stress is to be comprehended. This noble truth of stress has been comprehended. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard of before. This is the noble truth of the origination of stress. This noble truth of the origination of stress is to be abandoned. This noble truth of the origination of stress has been abandoned. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. This noble truth of the cessation of stress is to be realized. This noble truth of the cessation of stress has been realized. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. This noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress is to be developed. This noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress has been developed. Now I'm going to talk about some of the terminology in that um, translation. First, vision. This is a um, quality of aware attention that's not afflicted by craving or clinging. Um, there's a particular perspective 
a goal in this process, which is to be able to understand what you're experiencing as you're experiencing it. This is distress and confusion. For example, um, feeling of frustration because your shoelace got knotted, right? Your shoelace got knotted because that's what happens. But the frustration is because there's an assumption, a belief that's strongly conditioned that having a knotted shoelace warrants being angry. I can remember back in the day before I really started my recovery being getting really upset when my shoelace got knotted. That's because I was so anxious and insecure in my personality structure that you know very I could be very punitive of myself when I made a mistake. Not just about knotted shoelaces, but any number of things. But I, as the practice matures, I can be aware of, oh, shoelace is knotted. But because I've spent a lot of time cultivating serenity, uh, I call samadhi pasadi. Samadhi is stability of attention and pasadi is tranquility in the mind. It's a buffer against that impulsive reactivity. And I can be aware of, oh, this is frustration. This is what it feels like. But it's minimal and it's transient. Right? That's the first doorway to pass through in terms of understanding dukkha. Be aware of it as it's happening in a way that's objective, not um, all tangled up with it. Insight comes along with this. It's an informed and non-reactive awareness. It allows one to become aware of craving and clinging. I mentioned before, craving is this, this impulsive reactivity. And clinging is the mind being entrapped or, or enchanted by a belief that the world should somehow be different than what's actually happening right now. So you have an insight about that, but in this insight can't happen without a quality of detachment. Just can't happen. So the mind is unburdened by craving and clinging. Then discernment is the ability to recognize that there's an alternative to craving and clinging, letting go, um, and taking care of business. So I notice my shoelace is knotted. I just undo the knot and retie it, or take my shoe off, or whatever. Right? And we could this could go on about any number of situations we find ourselves in. All of them have to do with identity, self-identity. Self-identity is a, a, an acculturated response that occurs for every one of us when we're growing up. Family of origin, the uh, socio-political status, you know, your skin color, um, whether your family has any wealth or not. Uh, your nationality, your um, religious affiliation or non-affiliation. All of these uh, build a conditioned sense of identity. So this discernment is the ability to deconstruct that in an ongoing way. And that is that uh, creates knowledge. Knowledge basically is about liberation. And liberation can either be in terms of 
not being so neurotic, not being so prone to getting really upset when shoelace gets knotted, all the way up to the realization of nirvana, the unconditioned. And um, that's what that's, that uh, excerpt, the translation I read, talks about. Uh, there are many times I proposed that this person we call the Buddha was the first psychologist in human history. And I'm not the only person who has thought this. Because he, you know, he saw how the personality operates. That's one of the things that's remarkable to me about Buddhism. It attracts me to it because it's so sensible. Literally as well as figuratively. It's the ability to notice the interaction between what goes on in a body and how the mind makes meaning of what goes on in a body. That interaction is called Nama Rupa. Uh, nama is the, uh, the mental function, interpreting and responding. And na, Rupa is the, the sensory experience, you know, seeing, hearing, etc., etc. So, um, this describes it very clearly. In fact, when I was in graduate school, uh, in graduate school, you're required to take a course in personality theory. And the book that we were using in that course was a standard text that was used by graduate schools all around the country. And one of the chapters was written by a fellow named Daniel Goldman. And uh, Daniel Goleman is a very well-respected scholar and um, meditation teacher. He's been meditating for probably 50 years or more. Uh, he's one of a group of people who became acquainted with one another when they were all going to Harvard. And then they went off to various places in India and Southeast Asia and learned how to meditate. And came back and had a, played a big role in what Buddhism is like today in America. But he wrote a chapter in there on the uh, five aggregates as a theory of personality. I was so excited. I told all of my cohort, you know, look at this. They kind of looked at me and so what? It's not Freud, not Jung, you know, it's not Adler. <coughs> I won't be tested on what is in this chapter. Who cares, right? Well, I was very excited. So, um, I went into profession uh, of psychotherapy for over 30 years uh, and um, I brought my understanding of Buddhism into my psychotherapy practice. Now it doesn't mean that I convinced or intended to convince every one of my clients and I had hundreds of clients over more than 30 years. Uh, that they should be med practicing mindfulness meditation. Some did, um, but frankly most didn't. But I could bring that same kind of understanding about the Four Noble Truths to those encounters. Um, you know, a person would come up and they would have a, some kind of diagnosis, anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, relationship conflicts. And there would either be some kind of underlying physical condition. Some people are physiologically prone to anxiety or depression. It's hardwired into their bodies. Others, um, the culture that they were in or experiences that happened created their anxiety or depression. I grew up in a family that was afflicted with anxiety and depression and alcoholism. You know, I have an anxious personality and I've been depressed in my life and I had an addiction back in my hippie days, right? So I couldn't say for sure whether my proclivity to those problems was hardwired into my nervous system or I just learned it in my home growing up. It doesn't matter. But I realized that my recovery would be benefited by mindfulness meditation. 
fact, it didn't really start until after I started meditating. And so I could bring that sensibility about these afflictions into my discussions, my, my treatment plan, if you will, with my clients. So let's talk about your distress and confusion, your anxiety, your depression, your problem with alcohol or your, your marital conflict. Let's talk about that as a condition, not who you are. It's something that you learned or something that's part of your, your uh, wiring, if you will. But it doesn't have to be who you are. You've identified with it as this is who I am and that's your problem. So I've covered the first and second noble truth. Yeah, of course you're suffering. That's why you're here. And secondly, the reason you're suffering is because of conditions. It's not inherently, permanently true. You can change it. You can change it. That's the second noble truth. Then I would start to bring to bear the, the, some of the implications of the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path. I'm not going to go into that in detail with this discussion, just to say that you can develop the ability to notice when you are telling yourself something about what's happening that causes you or feeds into your anxiety. And you can change that. Right? You can change that. This is what mindfulness is. And renunciation. Which is, mindfulness is one part of the Eightfold Path and renunciation is right effort. Part of the Eightfold Path. So I can have conversations with people informed by this uh, profound uh, psychology, which also happens to be spiritual in terms of its aspirations. Right? So I regard this, the Four Noble Truths, as a psychology. Um, you could call it a spiritual psychology, you could also call it a psychology of spirituality. So that was my um, approach to being a, a therapist. Generally speaking, without delving into the, the realm of psychotherapy, I believe that the principles and the practices that are described in the very large accumulation of wisdom found in the various schools of Buddhism. It's a pathway for humanity to evolve. We are caught um, in a trans transitional dilemma. On the one hand, we are burdened with these instinctual reactions. <clears throat> you know, our, our bodies and minds still operate as if we were out in the jungle about to be attacked by an enemy or eaten by a predator. That's what happens when we get anxious. When my shoelace got knotted, I could die. And trust me, as I was analyzing this for myself, thinking it through, if I can make a mistake about tying, untying my shoe, I can make a mistake in a really, really dangerous situation, couldn't I? Right? I could die. Or somebody I care about could die. Not likely. I mean, obviously, on a very absurd level, yeah. If I'm inept about tying my shoelace, and I stop to tie my shoelace, and because of that, I get hit by a car. Yeah. But, you know... Not likely. So, um, we're caught in this dilemma. One side of it is animalistic, reactive. And we tend to react with our animalistic responses in the context of social interactions. If someone says something insulting 
to me. That's a threat. And I must respond aggressively. No. They may be completely mistaken. Probably are. Even if they're right, so what? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? But the reaction inside acts as if this is a serious threat. This is where the Four Noble Truths, particularly the Noble Eightfold Path, pays off. Because we can train ourselves to be non-reactive. We can be responsive. Uh, another well-respected teacher is John Kabat-Zinn, and he said that this practice involves learning how to respond rather than react to these situations. And so, um, to me, that's an evolutionary trend. But we have to train for that effect. You know, we all have the capacity to speak. Some of us can sing, which is a very advanced capacity to use the language of speech, to uh, make music with it. <clears throat> I'm not gifted with that. Um, probably because I've had sinus infection or sinus problems most of my life and nobody in my family really sang. No one took interest in teaching me how to sing. But I could, I could have learned if I had started early enough, right? But I didn't. I can't sing. But I can have a different personality structure. I can change that. And that to me is what the Four Noble Truths in operation uh, leads to is that ability to integrate. I, I often talk about moving from self-state conflict, which is what dukkha is, to self-state integration, which is basically good mental health, good life. And then that sets the stage for self-state liberation, which is moving toward the third noble truth, dukkha, the realization of, of uh, nirvana. So, um, we are now living in what is the most crucial era of human history. Um, this is called the Anthropocene era. You know, there's the Pleistocene and Neocene, now there's the Anthropocene which basically means the trajectory of life on the planet is being controlled by humans. And <clears throat> a lot of problems. Perhaps you've noticed, right? Sociocultural problems, um, ecological problems, and it's very stressful. People will have to adapt. We will have to adapt. People who are listening to me will have to adapt. Somehow or other. Psychologically. To not be overly distressed and confused by what's going on. I cannot take responsibility for oil being pumped out of the ground in Canada. Or... Um, in you know uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula cannot take responsibility for that I can take responsibility for what to what extent I burn that product or use that product in the form of plastic I can take responsibility for that and I can speak about the value of being more ecologically responsible. My little sphere of influence. I can do that. I invite you all to use mindfulness and loving kindness to develop a different relationship with gas and plastic, for example. 
same thing is true with the, the sociocultural problems of the day. All the stuff that's going on politically and in terms of ethnicity, skin color, um, gender identity, and so forth and so on. I can't take, I can't do anything about that on the large scale, but I can be wiser in the ways that I interact with other people. Kinder, more compassionate, more generous. I can do that. And, you know, the affordable truths provides a conceptual structure and a practice modality, which is what the fourth noble truth, the noble full path, is about. It's a practice modality. It's a way to realize the first, second, and third noble truths, potential. I can use that, but I have to train for that effect. That is, for me, is what um, I'm, why I practice. You know, I, I, I think it was uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, as difficult as it may seem, we can only change the, person, the world one person at a time. We have to start with ourselves. So, I hope that what I've shared with you in terms of an overview of um, the uh, Four Noble Truths is helpful. Going forward, there will be an ongoing series of meetings that are going to talk about each of the Four Noble Truths in detail. So I hope that you might be inspired to tune into that. So now the, the floor is open for questions or comments about what you've heard me say. Anybody? John? The one and two there, distress and confusion and craving and clinging must be become impersonal and impermanent. Um, that always amazes me because we you, well, I sit to um, get a break from thinking. And if I consistently sit, I, that's what I enjoy so much about it. So sort of stillness. So what exactly, I mean, is he just saying cessation of thinking? Is this um, um, reward? Is he saying, you know, that's that always kind of, well, there are several benefits that come from well, yeah, setting that. aside the, the, the stream of thoughts. Every time we have a thought, there's an emotional co-occurring um, energy that occurred, that, that happens. Adrenaline, which is the most obvious way to describe it. When we get excited, either pleasantly or unpleasantly, adrenaline gets injected into the body, the nervous system, the, the bloodstream rather, and muscles tense up and the heart rate increases and so forth and so on. Um, the language that we have going on inside mostly is organized around self-defining um, activities and a lot of times they're stressful. So when you can rest into a, a flow of consciousness that is not stirred up by thoughts. That whole system of adrenaline metabolizes out of the system so the whole system becomes more relaxed, more calm, less stressful. And that kind of baseline of serenity makes it possible to be less reactive when you start to think again have to make plans, take actions, so forth and so on. Does it make you necessarily a better planner? Does it necessarily make you uh, more successful? Because life is more complex. You can be very bright and very well organized and have greatest plans in the world and a blizzard comes through and messes up your plans. You have no control over that. Right? Or here in Florida, a hurricane. Right? Um, so that's the benefit of a quiet mind. 
what, what is called noble silence, is that it creates a buffer against impulsive reactivity and it allows the mind to be reorganized in such a way that going forward your thought processes are not driven by already existing adrenaline levels. Right, so suppose you were having a lousy thought. Are you still going to have this adrenaline? Yes. Oh, okay. It might, you know, I, adrenaline, I when I say adrenaline, that's a pretty overblown comment, right? But there are excitatory neurochemicals mm -hmm. when activated by a lousy thought, an angry thought. They do impact other thoughts going forward. They affect your mood, they affect your distractibility, they affect... Um, your heart rate, muscle tension, so forth and so on. And it tends to build up and build up and build up. Uh, we talk about the last straw that broke the camel's back. Everybody talks about the last straw as if all the other straws didn't exist. So stress is like the straws. So we build up straws, we build up, we become accustomed to a high level of being burdened by straws of unwholesome un thinking, greed, hatred, and ignorance, right? Ignorance in this case means self-delusion, right? So that those stress levels have built up and build up. All it takes is one more straw, one more little thing. This is where road rage comes from. This is where uh, marital quarrels come from. People are so stressed and their patterns of working through stress had been compromised by prior conditioning. And that's how these things happen. But when a person is mindful and they can be aware of the potential to act out, but not feel urgently reactive, they can redirect their thoughts and behaviors more effectively. Does that help? It does. It does. Tuning down the reaction to those thoughts. Yes, that—that's another way of saying sit more, consistent. Sit more and learn how to let go. There's the two elements of mindfulness meditation. One of them is focusing on the breath. The other one is letting go of whatever distracts you. And you're training the mind how to let go, which is just as important as training the mind to be focused on the breath. Uh, okay. I like that. Um, Bob and then Lily. Um, what attracted me to uh, Buddhism is the uh, logic and the, it all makes sense. It just applies to my life perfectly. And that's why I fell right into it. Um, the, I found, I concluded to, I'm, I'm totally defenseless against the initial reaction of things. The initial reaction is always panic and, and I think your hurricane analogy was, was right. As soon as you hear hurricanes coming, my initial thought goes to total destruction. <laughs> and, but I'm fortunate that my practice has given me to that point where a few seconds later, sometimes just seconds later, I'll stop and think about that. Wait a mm -hmm. minute, might not form, might go out to sea. Even if it does come here, it usually is not that bad. It's more just inconvenience right. than anything. So, and it's not here yet. Down. You know, it, June 1st comes up and it's hurricane season, you start to panic because there could be a hurricane. And then you, you see on the news that there's a storm forming somewhere in the Atlantic. Oh, that could hit Orlando. That's unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. It's unnecessary. Now, if you get a, you, you see on the news that, yeah, it's careening from Tampa and it's headed toward Jacksonville. Yeah, now it's time to start to think about what to do. Exactly. Uh, your uh, analogy of shoelaces was interesting because it happened to me twice. <laughs> and the first time I just ignored it and I was tying my shoes, but then we'd pull all the time and wouldn't tie right. And I said, oh, I got to deal with this. So, so my dad took a fork and worked on it for a while and got it out. A couple days later, it happened again, but it wasn't that tight now. So, it but, it, but it's the same thing. It's like you have to get past this initial aggravation. 
the other thing I want to comment well, on. Let, 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 me, let me say something about that. You can resolve, you, you can uh, um, define that situation as a problem or an opportunity. And what I mean by an opportunity, okay, this is the first noble truth. I'm stressed because of the knot. All right, let's pay attention to that. Why am I stressed? I'm craving that the knot, the knot never should have happened or that I can't easily unknot it, right? So you're aware of craving and clinging. Because you're practicing letting go, which is really the third noble truth or more real, realistic, the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path in right effort, you let go of that and you'll get a fork and you tease it open. And so it's no longer a problem, it's a chance to be different. And that is crucial. That's crucial. So that's, that's what I meant when I said that this system really works when you work it. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I want to comment on was the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, in our group, we substituted uh, right speech to wise speech. Mm -hmm. uh, right? Sure. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that, that seems to... Okay. Yeah, and I changed right livelihood to right lifestyle, right? Because, you know, our livelihood is only part... What, what we do to earn money is only part of our life now. It's what we do when we're home and when we're on the highway and all so forth and so on. It has to do with our, our uh, how we eat, what we eat, uh, whether we're getting exercise or not. That's lifestyle. That's not livelihood. So, yeah, it's important for us to make these adjustments, these adaptations uh, based on current life circumstances. So, thanks for that, Bob. Lily? What came to mind with the shoelace is that would be awesome mindfulness practice for children to have knotted shoelaces and uh -huh. make them figure out because that's, you know, that's like the practice right there. So the first thing you do is you help them recognize, okay, what are you feeling right now? Oh, I'm, I'm angry. I'm upset. Is that going to help you untie your shoe? Is that going to make it knotted more? Yeah, it'll make it knotted more. So let's take a moment to calm down. Now, try and see if you can get it untied. Experiment a little bit. See what happens. It's still not working. How are you feeling? I'm still upset. Take a moment to calm down. I wonder if it worked better if we had a fork. And you could take a little bit of the fork and you could put it in there and see if you could untie it. You think that might work? Yeah, it might work. Does that make you anxious or angry or does that make you hopeful? Well, I'm hopeful because it could happen. So, it, you know, you just you apply that according to that child's uh, development. What I like to ask though is, so two things. For the majority of my life when I was reading about meditation or Buddhism or any spiritual practice, always the term let go came back. And I remember that for the majority of the years, I'm like, nobody explains what let go is. So in the end, when we talked about it right now and throughout my practice, I figured out that letting go is basically accepting and letting go in meditation is redirecting my attention to the breath. Yes. So that was such a crucial moment because I'm like, finally for myself, I was able to define what letting go means. And my question is, I have still trouble understanding clinging. So even though I read about it, craving, yes, but clinging for me is still a little bit, if you could explain that in a few words. Clinging means the mind's preoccupation with an expectation or belief. Because craving is if I do not want to accept Craving is a felt sense of urgency. And craving, I often now, in fact, in my notes, I have craving slash clinging mm -hmm. because they're, they're very interactive. I could go into a long discussion about the physiology, what goes on in the brain and the body with craving and clinging, but that's diving deeper into, this is an overview, this is not a deeper analysis of that um, conditioning. But um, it's just basically a thought comes up that is provisional. Mm 
it may or may not be useful. It may or may not be wholesome. So you observe it with discernment, one of those terms, and that discernment allows you to check as to whether or not what you think should be about a situation is really the best approach. And that's what Shyla Catherine calls a potent pause. The mind has a chance to not jump to a conclusion. Jumping to a conclusion is craving. The conclusion that you jump to is clinging. And the mind has then, when you're not jumping to the conclusion, the mind has an opportunity to think differently about the situation. For example, you know, somebody says something insulting. I might jump to the conclusion that I have to defend myself. I can't let this person get away with that. But when I have that potent pause, I can recognize that an angry response is just going to prompt this person to escalate. So the anger response, the, the anger response is my claim? The angry response, part of it is the urgent feeling of reactivity, mm -hmm. the clinging is the belief that somehow or other you have to get the best of this person. Okay. We can keep talking about it because yeah, it's it's challenging to, to understand that. I had a pause was life changing for me. Uh, I feel that I have to separate them, but I understand that you cannot really separate the two words. So I, that's the challenge. Right. In the experience, they come together. Thank you. Questions? Comments from the Zoom crew. We can't uh, wait a minute, Steve. You have something? Now you're talking about clinging. I, in 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 some of just the concentration work that I, I do, I recognize just how much of my actions or reactions are habitual. And how much of that actually is based in aversion? In my, in my, just my, my reactivity towards, towards something. And I think maybe it's, it's that habitual response that is the clinging aspect. Yes. So the aversion is the dukkha. And the habitual part of it is the second noble truth, which is craving and clinging. Craving keeps pulling you back into the aversion, and clinging keeps telling you a story that justifies being pulled back into the aversion. The experience of aversion is an instinctual response. It's just a feeling. It's an unpleasant feeling. There's no dukkha there. But when the mind identifies with it and makes a story out of it and takes action based on it, that's where the craving and clinging comes in. Does that make sense? Yes, he's nodding his head. Other questions or comments? What I think is interesting is that it, the ongoing process of sitting, your mind still will jump like I had some road rage coming over because I had some internet rage getting on Zoom not working and it does get you. I mean, envision, even though you have been sitting a long time, which I have, it still gets you. It just kills me how the mind gets you. <laughs> yeah, well, see, that's the thing is that we, part of our problem with craving and clinging is that we want it to be fixed. I want to be a good person, as if a good person is a, an enduring, reliable entity. No, life is very complicated, and we are hardwired to react. Every human being is hardwired to react. And the idea is to what extent one gets, one's sense of self gets wrapped around that reactivity and makes up a story that amplifies it, strengthens it. 
So this brings to mind a story that I've said before about Ajahn Chah, who was a well-respected master in Thailand, and Jack Kornfield, a very well-respected Western Buddhist teacher, when he was a monk, was riding with Ajahn Chah through northern Thailand, and they had rented a taxi, and the taxi driver was crazy, speeding, passing on blind corners, there's no guardrails, cliffs going down hundreds of feet, and Jack was terrified. He thought he was going to die, and he was feeling very ashamed. And then he looked over at uh, Ajahn Chah, who was gripping the back of the front seat, and his face was ashen, right? He was obviously terrified. And they got to where they were going, and Jack turned to Ajahn Chah, looked at him, and Ajahn Chah smiled and said, that was interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> now that's a case where one's mortality is really on the line. This isn't just somebody insulting you. They could have died. But still, Ajahn Chah was noticing this is what a body does when, you know, when life is threatened. But he was equanimous about, I, I assume, high blood pressure, you know, muscle tension, uh, what, even racing thoughts, perhaps. But part of his mind was very serene and non-reactive about his, you know, identity. Mm -hmm. Who knows? It's a great story. Uh, uh, Lily said, I wonder why you didn't stop the taxi. Yes, Sharon? I think I was on that taxi when I was in the Philippines many years ago. I, <laughs> I relate so much to that. Um, one of the things that I find is interesting is to be able to view myself when all of that's going on. Because, and I'm not talking about the taxi, I'm just talking about... Um, I, I had, uh, just as an example, um, I, I had an experience where I was trying to accomplish something with somebody's assistance because they were in a position of providing it and I needed it. And what I try to do is to recognize, it, it helps me to recognize what's going on, but then to also find a way to express it. And that, to me, is sort of like the um, release valve for the experience of dukkha, where I can um, take a moment to, if I'm really good at being able to say something in a way that will... Um, let myself uh, not have that feeling, but also allow my allow the other person to have an opportunity to see what's happening. Of course, you can't do that when you're on the road, but you can do it in face-to-face -face encounters, or on and the phone, or on the phone I, trying to get help from somebody. Exactly. Yeah, that, so once again, that's an opportunity, not a problem. And, well, yeah, I, I thank you for saying that, because um, it's a skill to be able to um, take a position in an interaction and not internalize that stress, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Not make yourself so, out of it. Um, not make yourself out of it. Yeah, because otherwise, um, it, it it's not good for me. So I kind of go out on that limb of saying something, and in doing so, it's important to practice that skill of communicating without. Um, getting attached to that internal emotion. So if I can do that, and I'm, I really try to work on that, it's, it, it's helpful for me. Me too. So I'm noticing that we're actually running over tonight. 
So um, I'm really appreciating this conversation, and I hope that uh, the next time we all get together, we can continue to explore this really, really powerful uh, structure for liberating ourselves from dukkha. Next week, they have the first, uh, maybe a couple of uh, conversations about the first noble truth, dukkha. So I hope that you all will be able to join us for that. So as is our custom, let's sit for a moment in silence together. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well, and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to interact. <laughs>